No. Who's that? Oh, yeah, I've heard of her. That's great. Sure. 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 All right. Good morning, Shore Church. It is uh, it's great to be with you. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Um, great to have you especially join us um, on this special day where we recognize how great you are and all the things that you've done in our lives o- over the years. And so, so good to see you um, and great to be with you again. Thanks to James for the invitation. I love this ministry, love James, love the team, love, love the elders and, and just love what's going on here. And so when James said, hey, Norm, if you could come hang out with us, join us in this series through the book of Psalms, that was an easy yes. So, so many thanks to him. Um, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to take it out. Turn to Psalm 90. We're in Psalm 90 today. As you find that uh, text, uh, people have asked me, how do you find this um, speaking into a camera? And my answer, quite honestly, is I hate it. Um, I, I hate it for many reasons because this just isn't natural. Looking into a camera like this, I miss people. I miss being with people. Even when I speak normally or anybody speaks normally to a, to a group, you don't just look at one thing the whole time. That would be a little weird if you were in a, in a congregation and a group of people and the, and the pastor just looked at you the whole time. It would freak you out. But we have to do that while we're doing this today. And so I hope it works out for you when we do that. Again, great to be with you. Uh, But like I said, I look forward to when we can gather together. I miss the body. I miss hugs. I miss praying with people when they can put their arm around me and vice versa. We can pray together. I miss communion. I miss all of that. But I am thankful that we have the technology today that allows us to do at least this. And some good things are taking place in spite of some of the limitations. And for that, I'm thankful too. But this is second best. Uh, I look forward again to when the body of Christ can get together physically because we're created to be physical people. We are physical people that need one another. And so, so I look forward to that day as well. Um, like I said, we're in Psalm chapter 90. Um, before we get into it, before, before we read it together, I, I need to give a little background um, to the psalm, and I need to do that by taking you back to Egypt. I need to take you back to the time when the Israelites were in enslavement in Egypt, in bondage to Pharaoh, that tyrannical ruler. 
If you remember the story, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob had his name changed to Israel. He and 70 of his family members made their way to Egypt. There was a famine in the land. Their, their son, his son, their brother, Joseph, was second in command. They moved there because of the famine and because Egypt has money, or excuse me, has food and resources. And so they make their home there, stay there 400 years. Obviously, Joseph dies, Jacob dies, his immediate family family dies, but they begin to grow. Hundreds of thousands of people reside in Egypt to a, to a place, it came to a place where the Egyptians and the new Pharaoh was scared of this group of people, and so he enslaves them. He puts them to work, and they begin crying out, crying out to God. God hears their cry, and long story short, he sends Moses. Moses comes in, and, and by, by way of the plagues of God, they're, they're set free. Last plague, the Passover, firstborn sons are killed. Pharaoh finally relents. And the people leave that enslavement, go through the Red Sea, and they begin this wilderness journey to a, a promised land. A land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was now going to be given to this new nation, this nation of Israelites. A, a land that God said is guaranteed. And so they began this journey to this promised land. Leads, leads them through the wilderness, provides for them, takes care of their needs, food, water, leadership, guidance, spirit, fire, cloud, the whole thing, to a time when they finally come to the doorstep of this land of promise, this land of Canaan. But before they go in, God directs them by way of Moses to spy out the land. And so 12 spies, one person from all 12 tribes, of the Israelites are sent in for 40 days. Really important number, 40 days to spy out the land. They come back after this 40-day period and 10 of them say this is a mistake. It's a, it's a huge group of people, not only numerically, but physically. We're like grasshoppers to them. What are we doing? This is nuts. We should turn back. Two of them, however, say, no, we should go in. One named Joshua. The other named Caleb say, no, God's on our side. They may be, may be big, but God's bigger. So let's go. But the majority wins. The, the 10 spies that say it's a mistake, they rally the Israelites and say, this is crazy. This is an absolutely idiotic idea. We should go back. And the crowd agrees. And they rally. They rally against the leadership, Moses specifically, and said, this, they say this is a mistake. We got to go back. We need new leadership. In fact, when Caleb and Joshua say, no, we're making a mistake by going back, we need to go forward, they want to kill them. They want to take them out. At that point, and you can read about this in Numbers chapter 14, God intervenes and says to Moses, I want to destroy this people. I'll make you into an even better nation. I'll take care of them. We'll move on from here because of their stubbornness and, and faithlessness and, and they're turning back and not believing in my promises. After I've taken care of them, after freeing them from Egypt and providing for, for them, they are doing this. I'll destroy them. Moses intercedes and says, no, God, please, no. If you don't go forward, the Egyptians will mock you. This will be a depiction that you are not to be trusted. And so God relents. 
But then he says to Moses, here's what I'm going to do. For every day that you spied out the land, you are now going to go back into the wilderness and journey in the wilderness until the generation of people that left Egypt over the age of 20 die. They'll die in the wilderness. And everybody under the age of 20 will go into the promised land. That's the background. Why that as background? I give that as background because that's the setting behind the writing of Psalm chapter 90. You can see at the very beginning of the psalm that it's a song or a prayer of Moses, and he wrote it down. He writes this psalm with this in the wake, meaning this has just taken place. In fact, historians suggest that as they journeyed in the wilderness for that 40 years, waiting for that generation to die, the people would get up every morning and read this psalm. And if not every day, then at least every time they gathered for worship, this psalm would be read. So with that as background, with that as background, let's read it together. Starting, like I said, in verse 1, chapter 90, this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. He writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth, And the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but a yesterday when when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The year of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let me just pause here for a moment and pray. And so, Father, uh, guide us now. This is your word, so guide us through it by way of your spirit. And, And may we be people who respond exactly as we are according to your direction. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so lots here in this psalm. Uh, some of it's that, that is confusing. And so to help us walk through it, I've divided it into three sections. We'll take them one at a time. The first, I'm entitling Who God Is. 
who God is is explained by Moses. In part, at least, we'll see other things as we go forward. But in part, God is explained and described in verses 1 and 2. What do we read about God in these two verses? Well, one of the things that we read about him is he is eternal. If you look at verse 2, I know we've read it. Let me read it one more time to show you the eternality of God. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Literally, from forever to forever, you are God. But what we also see in verse 2 is that God is not only eternal, he is creator. He brought forth and formed the world. So he's eternal, He's creator, but there's, there's more. Moses begins, just go back to verse 1 and see what Moses begins with there. He describes God in verse 1 as a dwelling place. Let me read verse 1 again just to remind you of it. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So think about the generations that Moses is referring to. Lord, from Abraham to our day. From Genesis 12, when you called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, from that day to our day, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. It's a, it's a sweet verse. It really is. It's this, it's this nice, sweet entry point into this psalm. But what stands out, ironically juxtaposed against, against this verse, is that they, God's chosen people, haven't had a home over that entire time. From Abraham to their day, they haven't had a home as a people. Just think about it. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were essentially nomads. They lived in tents. Their temple thereafter was a tabernacle. God had a tent. They were so nomadic. And then as we talked about in our intro, as we saw Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, he journeys down, he journeys down to Egypt of all, people, all places, Egypt. And the people lived there for 400 years, much of that in enslavement. And, and when the Israelites are finally set free, what do they begin? They begin this 40-year wandering in the wilderness it stands out. They were essentially homeless in all generations. And yet, and this is why it's so sweet, Moses says, Lord, through, throughout it all, you have been our dwelling place. You, you've been our home. I, I remember when uh, I was called to plant Westside 150 years ago. It was called to plant Westside. And, and we were living in, in Surrey. We had a town home in Surrey. And, and so uh, we wanted needed to come back to Vancouver, sold our home. And for a couple of months, we were homeless. Not homeless as in living in the street or in our car, but we had no place. And for a couple of months, we lived in the basement of, of some friends of ours. Our kids were both under three years old at that time. And, and we began that search for a house. Every morning, I would get up at 7 o'clock, and I would go on Craigslist, and I would look for a place that was available. And we finally found a place, and man, it was, I was fired up. It, it just kind of, here we are. We're called to this place, and now here we are. We have a home. My kids are safe. Because before that, I felt transient. I, 
I, I felt out of sorts. I felt like, no, my, my kids need to have a place where they have their own rooms and can do stuff. My wife needs to feel good about things. And so when we finally moved in, it, it, it made us feel somewhat secure. We had a refuge. But what Moses is telling us here in verse 1 is that our soul needs a dwelling place too. And what he's saying to us in verse 1 is that there is a home available that is far more important and far more secure than the best place piece of real estate in the world. And, and that's why, by the way, it's possible to have the nicest house in Vancouver and still feel unsettled. And why it's possible to have no place in Vancouver and feel entirely at home. You, you, you may be a nomad, as it were, but your heart be entirely at rest. That's verse 1. But the opposite is true as well. This was made clear to me a few years back when I was still pastoring at Westside. And I remember about year three or four, I was invited to this guy's house. He wanted to talk about some things. He lived in Coal Harbor. We know Coal Harbor. He lived on about the 15th or 16th floor, 2,500 square feet, overlooking Stanley Park. Nice place. And, and honestly, jealous? I was jealous. At 2,500 square feet, one floor feels huge. It's huge in a house. Huge overlooking seaplanes flying out, birds, all of that stuff. It was great. Stanley, the view, we all know that view. And, and I, I couldn't imagine a better place to live in Vancouver. And yet the reason why we met together, why he wanted to talk to me was his life was full of angst, despair, no, no, no peace at all. Physically, he had found a place, but, but his soul remained homeless. But what Moses is saying here in verse 1 is we haven't found a place, but our hearts have a home. The great Augustine, one of the early church fathers, Augustine of Hippo, has famously said, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. God is a dwelling place. That's who God is. He's, he's eternal, he's creator, and he's a dwelling place. That's who he is. But who are we? Well, that's verses 3 to 11, and it's a striking contrast. Who are we? Well, first of all, let me give you a list of things uh, rather quickly. One of, one of the things that stands out right from the beginning is that we are temporal. Look at verse 3. I'll read it one more time. Moses says of God, you return man to dust. And say, return, O children of man, or return, O children, quite literally there, of Adam. What a contrast. God is from forever to forever. We are from dust to dust. But not only that, we are fleeting. We're not only temporal, we're fleeting. Especially when we, when we place our lives on the continuum of eternity, we're fleeting. That's verse 4. Even if we live to be a thousand years, and just think about it, Moses pens the first five books of the Bible, and he writes of some people that did live close to a thousand years. But even if we live to a thousand years, it's like a yesterday to God. In, in fact, it's less time than that. 
It's like a watch in the night to God. A watch in the night, three hours. Our lives, it's like a watch in the night. In fact, he even goes forth, goes, uh, goes deeper. There's, there's more images uh, given that hammer this idea home. If you look in verse 5, our lives are compared there to, to a dream. Just a dream in the night. Verse 6, they are like grass. Our lives are like grass that sprouts up in the morning and withers in the evening. In verse 9, our lives are compared to a sigh. Just a sigh. I remember um, talking to my dad a couple of years ago um, when my mom passed away. Uh, he's 91 now, still living, and so he was about 88 at that time. And we got into a discussion, and I remember him saying, it's gone by so fast. And I think, quite honestly, if I was 20 years old at the time, I would have kind of rolled my eyes at that comment. But today, it just resonates with me. It goes by so fast. It feels like a sigh. So we are temporal. God's eternal. We are fleeting. God's from, from forever to forever. We, we, we thirdly are described by Moses as exposed. We are exposed. Look at verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. In other words, God, you see it all. You see it all. You, not, nothing is hidden to you, even our secret sins. Our iniquities, the, the brash sins, you see. Most people do see them. But our secret sins, too, that we think are hidden from everybody. In fact, if you fast forward to the New Testament and in places in the Old as well, we discover that God even sees the motives behind what we do. He sees our hearts. Nothing is, nothing is hidden. We stand naked and exposed before God. And therefore, the fourth thing that we see of us is we are guilty. And, and he, here's the thing. We are guilty today in, in 2020 for the same reasons they were guilty then. Guilty of turning our backs on him, God, in spite of his rescue. He gets us out of Egypt. And he guides us. First sign of tr trouble we turn our backs on him. Guilty of choosing our way instead of his. Guilty of complaining constantly in spite of his constant provision. Guilty of doubting his promises in spite of their constant fulfillment. And guilty of preferring Egypt more than the kingdom set before us. Whatever Egypt we've come out of, we have those moments where I want to go back, I want to go back to Egypt. I, I prefer Egypt over the kingdom to come. And it's because of this that God responds with anger and wrath. They are mentioned five times in this psalm. You can't get away from them. If you want to do a faithful job preaching and teaching on Psalm 90, you can't ignore the mentions of God's 
anger and wrath. Just take a look at verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Look at verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. And verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? That's a confusing verse. Quite literally what it means is God's anger towards sin and rebellion far exceeds our concept of it. Huh. Right now I feel like 100 TVs turning off. Like where's the remote? Can I, I, what, what's Northview doing? Maybe we'll go there. Stay with me. Just, just stay with me. I, here's the thing. I don't like particularly getting up in the morning knowing, knowing that I'm going to spend a, lime, a lot of time talking about wrath. I don't like the word wrath, and you probably don't, don't either. But what is it? Especially when you consider the wrath of God in connection with God as he's displayed in the scriptures. Well, well what wrath is, is God's righteousness being carried out. God's God's wrath is justice made manifest. If you've ever seen something, perhaps you've turned on the TV or you're surfing the web and you you saw something that made you cry out, that's not right. Or, Or had something unjust done to you and you've sought restitution for. Or or perhaps you're a parent and or an uncle or an aunt, and you had a child, a niece or a nephew hurt by a wrongful act of another, and it made you angry, then you get wrath. You get wrath. But can you imagine seeing every evil done? Can can you imagine if every injustice was done to you? Can you imagine if every wrongful act was carried out on one of your children? You can't imagine that. It's impossible to imagine, but that's the case with God. Nothing is hidden. Even the secret things aren't hidden. He sees it all. And can you imagine him feeling nothing towards it? Or being indifferent to it? That would make God sociopathic. And that's not God. Just take the feelings that you have towards those things that I mentioned, multiply them by the heavenlies, and you begin to scratch the surface of how God feels when he sees every evil that takes place and has seen it since the cosmos begun post-Adam and Eve. God sees every injustice, every wrongdoing, every hurtful act carried out on his children, and make no mistake, he hates it. He hates it. And it angers him. The, The writer of Proverbs Chapter 6 writes, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a 
heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Do, do you hear that list? Arrogance, deceit, murder, wickedness, evil, perjury, discord. He hates it. And do you know what? So do you. So do I. Don't you get angry over it? When you heard about the mass shooting in Nova Scotia, didn't it anger you? When a leader politicizes a crisis like the one that we're going through, don't you hate it? My mom died of Alzheimer's three years ago. And at her funeral, I said, I hate Alzheimer's. I still do. There's an organization called, and I won't give you the whole name, F Cancer. I may not like the name of the organization, but I do get the emotion. Because I've done funerals for, for moms in their 30s who have passed away and left a, a dad with a couple of kids. I hate cancer. When, when the defenseless are treated unfairly, don't you want justice served? Isn't that why we love organizations like the International Justice Mission? Isn't it justice? We want justice. 13-year-old got my wife and I watching this video on IJM about what they do, interviewing a girl, 12 or 13, snatched from her parents. In fact, I think the one we, we looked at was sold by her parents, sold into prostitution, sexual slavery. They're interviewing her when they rescued. 12, 13 years old, asking how many times did she have sex in a day? She said 12 to 16 times. 12 to 16 times. Pot-bellied white dudes from North America traveling to have sex with a 12 or 13-year-old girl. Doesn't that anger you? Don't you want justice? Don't you cry out, that's not right? Of course you do. It would be, it would be strange not to. to. To feel that way is a sign of health. It's evidence that you've been created in the image of a God who is a God of justice and a God of righteousness. But here's the sobering reality. God doesn't simply see the evil out there. He, he sees the evil in us. He sees our arrogance and and lust, and deceit, and discord. He, he sees it all, pride and selfishness. And because of that, if he is not yet our dwelling place, his, his anger and wrath rests on us too. Paul writes that we are by nature children of wrath. In Ephesians 2 verse 3, in John chapter 3, in a verse that you can see on the screen behind me, Jesus affirms this idea when saying, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains, remains on him. 
Paul warns in Romans chapter 2, this isn't on the screen, but I'll read it for you. Romans chapter 2, verse 5, that if we presume upon God's kindness and reject his invitation, that we store up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's why Paul instructs us in Colossians 3 to put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, even evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is sobering stuff, man. This is hard stuff. It's bad news. Cancer is bad news. Hearing that you have cancer is bad news. But do you know what is worse? Having cancer and no one telling you that you have cancer, especially when you still had time to treat it. That's worse. And and praise God that God in his word has given us these words while we have time to treat it. It's grace. But this bad news is also what, what makes the good news so good. For our, here's the thing, our nature can be changed. A child of wrath to a child of the king. It can be changed. And and that wrath of God removed and replaced with righteousness. And and all of that that we've stored up between now and then could be emptied and and filled with grace. This isn't good news. This is is great news. The gospel should be called great news. Good news, great news. It's great news. And and it takes us to our final section in Psalm 90. See, here's the thing about Psalm 90. There's more. There's more. I, I physically, in my Bible, in Psalm 90, at verse 11, I get to flip the page. And I get to go to verse 12, and I get to, I get to look at verses 12 to 17, a section, this last section, that I am calling the astounding request. Let me read it for you. I know we've read it, but what else are you going to do? You can't go anywhere. Look at verses, verse 12 to 17. So teach us, they should put a laugh track in these. There should be a laugh track inserted. I don't know if anybody's doing that yet. They should, I bet Village is using a laugh. I shouldn't say that. I love Village. I love Mark. He's my homie. Verses 12 to 17. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad. For as many days as you've afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Boy, I've prayed that a lot these last few months. And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is astounding. This text here is a, verses 12 to 17 is, is astounding. And, and why it's astounding is astounding is because what because of what ha, has preceded it. It's astounding. Let, let, let me explain. See if I can illustrate this. Let's say back in the 90s, newly married, perhaps you get married, great, get married, newlyweds, and you get this. 
you get this internship down at the headquarters for Apple in San Jose. It's great. So you and your newlywed spouse, you move down to San Jose, not a lot of money coming in because you're a lowly intern. And so one day you get up because ta- cash is tight and your, your spouse says to you, hey, sweetheart, when you go into to work today, grab some time, see if you can grab some time with Steve Jobs and ask if he can help us out. What would you say? You'd say, are you nuts? You want me to go, sweetheart, you want me to go into work today, grab some time with Steve Jobs, the, the founder, the founder and director of, you want me to, the, the guy that invented the iPad and the iMac, and all, you want me to grab time with, you don't do that. Absolutely not. He's, he's Steve Jobs and I'm just a lowly intern. And we get that, right? We get that. If you get a parking ticket, you don't call up the mayor. Hey, can you get rid of the part? You don't do that. We, we all get this, but based on that rationale, and I get the rationale, makes sense to me. Based on that rationale, if God is God, eternal God, creator God, all-seeing God, all-knowing God, creator, not just creator of an iPhone, of everything, creator God. And we are what? Temporal, fleeting, exposed, and guilty. How should, how should verse 12 begin, even if God had the time? Well, the answer is that it shouldn't begin at all. Psalm 90 should end with verse 11. Short church, he's God, and we're not, so why would we think we could go to him? And yet Moses does, with a bunch of requests. It's astounding. And why? Why does Moses go? Well, because of what we learn in the midst of Moses' request, we learn more about who God is. He's a God of what? Compassion and steadfast love. He's more than that, as we've seen. We've seen things already in verses 1 and 2, but he's nothing less than that and every time. Every time. And the steadfast, as we read in places like Psalm 103, again, not on the screen, but verse 17 of Psalm 103, we, we read this of God. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Not only is God everlasting to everlasting, the steadfast love of the Lord is everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. That word fear, misunderstood, especially as it's used in the Old Testament. It's a positive word. The word fear as it's used in the Old Testament speaks of an inward awe and wonder. It speaks of a love for God, a reverence for God that comes out of knowing who he is. So everlasting love on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. So that's why Moses goes. That's why Moses takes these requests to God, astounding requests. Do you know if you call on God at three in the morning, he picks up? Just think about that. He picks up. The king of the universe will take your call every time. Steve Jobs wouldn't. I won't. Don't call me at three in the morning. God, God will. Every 
time. And when we call on him, he won't rebuke us, but respond with grace towards us. And God will give us exactly what we need every single time. God never sends us away empty-handed. He always gives us grace every single time. That's who he is. That's Psalm 90. As as we begin to, to wrap up, I want to point out that verses 12 to 17 is the application of this psalm. In other words, because of who God is and who we are, how should we respond? That's verses 12 to 17. But I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to neat-nick that with you. I'm going to leave that with you to consider individually and or within your community groups this week. Simply ask, from verses 12 to 17, how do we respond in light of verses 1 to 11? That, that's Psalm 90 in a nutshell. And, and in fact, what the beautiful thing about 12 to 17 is there's six verses there. Take one verse, meditate on that verse one day a week. Just think through it. Meditate on it. And if you don't know how to meditate, if you know, if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. Because all, all meditation is, is, you worry, you think about something all day, all day, all day. Just make it good. Just think about God all day, all day, all day. Think about a verse all day, all day. Just, med- just meditate on it. Just redeem worry and meditate on it and see how we're to respond. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to walk through this with you and answer those questions. I'm going to leave that with you. And I'm choosing to do this not because I'm being lazy. But I'm doing it because I don't want us to miss the big picture of this psalm. There's a sweet, big, large, grand picture in in this psalm, in, in these 17 verses. In these 17 verses, this psalm records the story of God from beginning to end. In fact, if you identify yourselves as Christian, do you not see the panorama of the gospel weaving its way through this psalm? I mean, just think about how this, how does this psalm begin? In the beginning, God. Everlasting God. Creator God. And we are the very good of his creation. But there's a, there's a rebellion and a falling away. And death is introduced, right? From dust to dust. Adam's curse, our curse. We live, we die, maybe we hit 80. But we also come to the curse of God. And what hope do we have? Well, no hope at all. God is God, we are not. And he's rightfully angry at our sin, and so we all die, eternally separate from God. What a sad story. I mean, what a, what a sad story. But here, here's the thing about this psalm. It's not the end of the story. Verse 11 isn't the end. There's more. We get to flip the page. We can flip the page in the psalm, but as we do, as we flip the page in our minds within this psalm, don't forget the sweet entry spot of this psalm. Remember the entry entry point, entry spot? It begins with an invitation. Do you remember it? Make me your home. For for those restless, restless at heart, come home. Prodigal. Come home. You've, you've screwed up in the, in the wilderness again? Come home. And I will be your refuge from 
forever to forever. Don't forget the invitation. But here, here's this thing. This, this psalm that begins with an invitation ends with a, a further description of God. Moses makes his astounding requests because he knows God is a compassionate God. A God of unfailing and everlasting love. A God who grants wisdom and lavishes satisfaction. He's a God who can replace our years of affliction and overwhelm them with the years that we have left with gladness. He's a God who seeks to pour out his favor on us. What a God. What a God. What a description of our God from beginning to end. Now, I know my time is done. But there's one other thing. There's something else that I don't want us to miss from Psalm 90. Take a look at verse 13. You see the cry there? Moses cries in verse 13, have pity on your servants. That, that word pity, and I've referred to it this, uh, uh, this way uh, throughout uh, at times, it can be translated with the word compassion. The word compassion that we have in the English actually comes from a Latin word, compati. And that word means to suffer with or to suffer alongside with. If you're compassionate towards someone, you will suffer with them. And I, and I don't want, here's why I don't want us to miss this, even though our time is done. I don't want to miss this because it's here in this cry in Psalm 13, or Psalm, verse 13, where Jesus overwhelms this psalm and completes the story of God and the grand display of the gospel that weaves its way through. Jesus, the one who left his home and came to us to provide a place for our souls to dwell. But he didn't come simply or merely to suffer with, but suffer for. Compassion personified. Pity made manifest. Sent in love, obedient to the point of death, on a cross, risen from the grave, and lives and reigns forevermore. And, and, and what took place when he accomplished what took place in so doing, Jesus satisfied the righteous justice of God. He satisfied every one of our cries. How long? We need to do something. He satisfied it. He fleshed it up. All, all our iniquities and secret sins and the motives behind them even. Satisfied. Not only does he see every sin, he took every sin. That's our Jesus. We, we read earlier, we read earlier that our sins are before God. We read in other places in the book of Isaiah that after coming to Jesus, our, our sins are put behind God. They're here now, Jesus behind. It's wonderful. Our sins are satisfied or forgiven as far as the east is, is from the west. That's far. It's far. You know, if you get on a plane and you fly due north, at some point you're going to start flying south, right? You take off on a plane and you go east, you know you never go west. You go east forever. Our sins are forgiven from the east to the west. Some of you right now think God only forgives our sins from the north to the south. 
that it turns back east to the west, behind him because of Jesus. God's anger and wrath replaced, placed on Jesus and removed from us. And if we come to him, he, if we come to him and he invites you, he invites you, his invitation, abide in me and I will abide in, abide in you. Make me your dwelling place. And oh Lord, how lovely is that dwelling place. Better is one day there than a thousand elsewhere. Amen. Amen. And it's a lot more than a thousand. It's forever. Two forever. Everlasting. And so as I close, some final words of Jesus to encourage you as we all continue our wilderness journey toward a better promised land. Just hear the words of Jesus from John 14. You can read those as well on the screen. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. It's going to be a great house, man. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. We love you. We love you. There's, there's a sober reality that, that comes with Psalm 90, but there's this sweet picture of grace. How you entered that, our crud, our sin, our iniquity, our rebellion. You, you came to our wilderness. And again, as we see, not simply with us, but for us. Oh, Jesus. And you invite us to yourself. Compassion, grace, mercy, forgiveness, all in you. And you, you invite us to dwell in you, and you and us. It's a wonder of wonders. So thank you. We bless you. We praise you. We stand on wonder of you. And Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus. For your grace. And Spirit, thank you for revealing Jesus to us. Convicting us and drawing us to Jesus. So thank you. And I, I pray as I close, I pray for those here listening, watching, that don't know you. I pray that today you would draw them to you Spirit, draw them to Jesus today, to make their home with Jesus today, to dwell with Jesus today. And Jesus, by way of your spirit, you dwelling with them and in them. And for those that do know you but have rebelled in their wilderness journey, I pray that they'd come back to you. Come back to you today. Overwhelm homes and, and places where people are meeting with your grace and your spirit, I pray, this weekend for the glory of your name and your kingdom. Amen. Thank you. You do an offering or anything? You do an